the impact of our Australian child maltreatment studies to really show that the prevalence of maltreatment is so much greater than in fact what is coming to the attention of our statutory child protection authorities each year. For kids it really is a space where they can become part of a community and I think there's a real role for sporting clubs and organisations to make sure that kids are kept safe in their care. And I think it's also for them being just aware of who can support them if something does happen at their club. I think it's cliche for a reason. Everybody has a role to play in safeguarding sport. And so understanding that it's all very well having your governance structures in place and, and great policies. But if people don't know what their rights are and what their responsibilities are, it's ineffective. I'm really positive about the role that the sports sector can play in building that parenting capacity and using evidence-based parenting practices as a really upfront thing that they support and engage. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Onside, I'm Tim Gable. At Sport Integrity Australia, we're committed to Australian sport environments that are safe, supportive and friendly for all members, including children and young people. We offer a safe place for people to raise concerns about behaviour they've witnessed or experienced in sport. Increasingly, sport integrity issues are featured on our front pages, whether it be concussion, racism, gambling or abusive match officials. There will be times when breaches of policies occur and having the tools available to manage complaints and disputes is essential. On our podcast today, we talk about safeguarding, particularly child safeguarding in sport. Our guests include Professor Daryl Higgins, the Director at the Institute of Child Protection Studies at the Australian Catholic University. Kate McNamara, the Director of Child Safeguarding at the Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries in Western Australia. And Sport Integrity Australia's Acting Director of Safeguarding, Emma Gardner. So Daryl, just with regard to the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, what, what sort of impact did it make? Well, the study is... Um as the name implies, you know, uh, the first national prevalence study of all forms of child maltreatment in Australia. And it really fills a gap that we have had up until now. Whenever we've talked about, you know, um, child protection issues, we've often gone to data on the um, different types of maltreatment that come to the attention of statutory child protection authorities. And I think the impact of our um, Australian child maltreatment study is to really show that the prevalence of maltreatment is so much greater than in fact what is coming to the attention of our statutory child protection authorities each year. How do you define child maltreatment? Well, child maltreatment is a term that researchers and, and many people use to really talk about different forms of abuse and neglect. So it's when the, um, the, the, the treatment, if you like, of, of children by parents or caregivers or others in positions of authority um, uh, is uh, not what it should be. How prevalent is it in sport? We've had a look at an overview here, but what about sport specifically? Yeah, so that is the one area that we have not yet looked at specifically. So we've not gone down to um, industry specific 
um, types of uh, harm. But of course, sport is just one example of what we would call an institutional context. Um, and often in those contexts, we're talking specifically about sexual abuse. In our study, we're looking at every form of child abuse and neglect. So we're looking at physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, and exposure to domestic violence. Is it gender specific? Yes, absolutely. We know that um, many forms of abuse and neglect are more prevalent um, for men, ver sorry, for women compared to men. Um, and certainly we found that in our study. And, and one of the unique things that we have is that we looked at not just um, adults 16 and up uh, who, uh, who, who experienced different forms of child abuse and neglect during their childhood. Uh, so we were able to look at um, changes over over time, going backwards, looking at gender differences, looking at um, age cohort differences. And, and that's really the power of a study as uh, comprehensive as ours is. So 8,500 Australians who uh, participated in telephone interviews. You'd hope now that you've laid the platform that there is going to be um, a positive response to your study. Oh, absolutely. Look, we we're already seeing that in terms of different sectors saying how valuable the, the data is to them. Uh, you know, I was meeting with people just last night who were saying how important this is for their work, both in terms of prevention, knowing um, how extensive it is and therefore what are some of the drivers that we need to be um, addressing in our community, but also in terms of responses. And, and one of the um, main ways in which I think our study is really important is is that it looks at the health and mental health consequences um, across life. And we know now that one of the really significant drivers of the scourge that we have in Australia of mental ill health is childhood experiences of abuse and neglect. Are you expecting that there is going to be further work done study-wise? You, you've done the child maltreatment study Australia-wide. Do you feel as though the time is right now to, to be absolutely specific on, on some of the areas that you've already identified? Uh, look, we're, we're just scratching the surface. This is the first, um, you know, six major articles have come out in the um, Medical Journal of Australia, but that's just the beginning. We've got another 20 articles that we're planning, um, so lots for, of further analyses to be done. Um, this is really just the beginning. All right. It, probably the perfect segue to... Kate McNamara, Director, Child Safeguarding, Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries in Western Australia. We've just had a look there um, through the eyes of Daryl about the, the impact that this study has had. Um, you've obviously had some issues in, in Western Australia. You've had um, uh, a Royal Commission in the institutional responses to child abuse, 310 recommendations for Western Australia. You've had the WACE women's artistic gymnastics program with Sport Integrity Australia conducting that review. So there are issues to deal with sports specifically, aren't there? Mm. Indeed, I think the uh, Royal Commission and Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse very much showed us that there was no type of institution that sort of escaped um, this type of abuse and harm of children, that it was prevalent across the board. Um, there is a one of the Royal Commission volumes does specifically look at sport and recreation itself and certainly found that there were, um, I don't know off the top of my head, but there was there were a lot of uh, 500, I was going to say 408, there you go. It's not <laughs> scratching the surface. <laughs> so um, of people that came forward with their stories about the harm they experienced in, in sporting institutions. So it's a big focus of our department, a lot of departments in WA and I'm sure around Australia is implementing 
those 310 recommendations, which are the ones that WA obviously have accepted, um, many of which relate to sport and our department leads two of those, but we work very broadly across some of the other recommendations with other agencies to ensure that sporting organisations and other sectors that we support are starting to become more child safe. How do you deal with it? You mentioned there safeguarding. Mm. Are there other things that you can do to, to protect particularly young people in sport? Yeah, I think it's. I think the sport space is a really interesting one for me. I'm um, full transparency, not a sporty person by background, um, and I think it's been a bit of a learning curve. But I think for kids, it really is a space where they can become part of a community, and I think there's a real role for sporting clubs and organisations to make sure that kids are kept safe in their care. So, I think you know, at at first, you know, it's around going back to the ten national principles for child safe organisations. For us, there was a lot of really brave survivors that came forward as part of the Royal Commission. And then there were a lot of really clever people that put together recommendations, one of them being the National Principles for Child Safety. And they are the foundational building blocks of, of keeping kids safe in an organisation. So we very much encourage all of our sectors, including sport, to make sure they're starting to work towards the National Principles for Child Safe organisations, becoming child safe. I certainly, as a parent of small children, would look at enrolling my children into a club that could tell me that they did, they have implemented those child safe principles rather than one that doesn't. So I think there's a few, there's obviously a lot of things going on that stem from the Royal Commission um, that I think sporting organisations can look to in the first instance. And I think it's also for them being just aware of, of who can support them if something does happen at their club. Who do they need to contact in the police? Who do they need to contact the Department of Communities? And obviously there's equivalent organisations over here. So start familiarising themselves with those processes and those organisations to empower them to actually know how to support a child if, worst case scenario, abuse does happen. What we learnt from the Royal Commission is that the institutional response often was very poor and that could compound the trauma further. So I think it's around not putting our heads in the sand and making sure we just accept the fact these things could happen, we prevent them where we can, but if they do occur, how do we support that young person in a very, very critical moment? Because that can really shape how they then move forward in their journey. I'll come back to both yourself and Daryl in a moment, Kate, but Emma Gardner is Sport Integrity Australia's Acting Director Safeguarding. Emma, just on the waste recommendations, what role did Sport Integrity Australia have then and what role does it have now? Thank you, Tim. So we basically conducted a review of, it was a cultural review of the Western Australian Institute of um, Sport Women's Artistic Gymnastics Program that went from 1987 till 2016, so a massive span. It's important to note that they don't have any more um, gymnastics programs at WAYS, um, but it was a cultural review. It was never a disciplinary process. But um, going into um, the interviews, I, my background is child protection, so obviously was part of some of the more complex interviews um, that we conducted. As part of that review, we had some 86 participants came forward with their stories of lived experience um, within that program, some quite positive, and we heard of some not so positive and, and some quite you know traumatic experiences that were, that were had throughout that program. Um, so I would caveat every interview with, uh, you know, this is not a disciplinary process, but if you tell me something that indicates that somebody, uh, that yourself or someone else is at significant risk of harm, then we will take that information further. So um, 
We, it was an interesting one because it was more of a restorative engagement process. It was a cultural review. And at the end of every interview, we asked the um, the athletes and the relevant persons within the sport who wanted to share their story, what would you do differently if you could? Um, and so I, I believe for the majority, for the most part, people feeling heard, people being believed and people understanding that we're doing our best to ensure this doesn't happen. Um, again, to the next generation of young athletes is, is key. Um, gymnastics isn't an island. In 1987, not many sports had child safeguarding policy. In 2023, we're still getting sports to adopt child safeguarding policy. And so for me, I guess the key difference for gymnastics and that extra um, duty of care is that you've got a sport where you're elite and sub-elite athletes are children. And so understanding, as Kate touched on before, you know, we know a lot more about brain development. We know about the impact of trauma on that developing brain and, you know, behaviours that were accepted in the past are not accepted anymore. So um, documentaries such as Athlete A created a snowball effect. So in the UK, in the USA and here in Australia, we reviewed gymnastics. There was a, a Human Rights Commission review also of gymnastics australia so very long answer yeah. i'm afraid and so um kate and dlgsc have been working with sport integrity to really unpack well what is the intention behind some of these recommendations what do they mean and what does success look like so for example setting up an independent complaint handling model what's a reasonable time frame and what does that entail so that we can ensure that we've got this cross-agency um, collaboration to really affect some positive change for the children and young people in sport today. Uh, what role does Sport Integrity Australia play in the total sports landscape, not just with waste, but you mentioned there the complaints handling model, but can you just give a, a quick overview on, on Sport Integrity Australia's role in safeguarding sport? Absolutely. So obviously a lot of people will be familiar with our organisation in terms of competition manipulation and anti-doping, um, but we have expanded our remit um, as part of the recommendations from the Royal Commission. Um, we wanted to really have one agency deal with all integrity areas and so now in the safeguarding unit we look at member protection and child safeguarding primarily. And so what that is is uh, coming from a child protection background, it's a really positive change to be in a proactive space, not a reactive space. So it's education, it is um, prevention. So we provide policy, which is really the drop in the ocean. Um, it's the implementation and the operationalisation of that policy that is key. So providing evidence-based best practice frameworks um, and other resourcing um, is really, really key to actually affecting the cultural change that needs to happen to keep people at all levels of sport safe from harm. What sort of um, safeguarding issues are we looking at? It's interesting, Tim, because the the data, and I'm so happy for the work that Daryl's doing, because um, the data from the Royal Commission is quite historical and 408 survivors of abuse in sport, I would say that that's not really scratching the surface. But the key areas of abuse were found, um, sorry, key risk areas for children and young people, such as, you know, transporting children, um, overnight stays in change rooms, etc. Those are really um, still the same key increased risk areas that we're seeing today. So the majority of the complaints that we receive at Sport Integrity Australia are child safeguarding complaints. And overwhelmingly, we're seeing the same key areas. So it, it shows us that we're on the money with our policy um, and that we're sort of still at times, I, I believe the sporting sector thinks we're being overzealous, but we're trying to eliminate grooming without, you know, 
increasing anxiety within the sport, but, you know, increasing that awareness and the understanding that if you create safe environments, then you eliminate a lot of those risks. Daryl, I'd imagine uh, a lot of what has been said by Kate and Emma resonates with you. Some of the some of the information, I guess, that you've received through this study that you've done. Absolutely. Look, uh, I'm really glad, um, Emma, that you used the word grooming. Um, and the reason for me saying that is that I think in in terms of prevention of child sexual abuse, we are often not explicit about what it is that we're trying to achieve. And so when we're really clear about what are the things, what are the conditions that can lead to harm, um, clearly grooming is, you know, the top one. And so we need to be um, explicit about that. We need to say it. Um, and the organisations that we're working with need to understand, first of all, what grooming is and what it might look like. Because, of course, it can look very similar to warm, trusting relationships. So that's really complex for for organisations, particularly sporting organisations, to get across. Um, the other thing that I've been reflecting on as we've been chatting uh, now is the fact that the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, um, not only did it shed a light on the, the prevalence of um, different forms of abuse and neglect, such as sexual abuse, and we found that 28.5% of the population had experienced sexual abuse. Um, we also found, though, that there have been some positive changes over time. So the younger group within our, our study, so the 16 to 24-year-olds, had slightly lower rates of sexual abuse compared to the um, older uh, participants in the study. But one of the main areas that I found really challenging but um, really important was that things like sexual abuse don't necessarily go on in isolation. They're often they're going hand in hand with other forms of abuse and victimisation. So that could be abuse that's going on in the family. It could be exposure to domestic violence. It could be um, emotional abuse. It could be physical abuse. Um, and so if we take a holistic view of children's health and wellbeing and recognise that harm may be going on elsewhere outside of the sport, What's our role in being able to provide, first of all, trauma-informed responses to hear disclosures about harm that might be going on in their home, at school, in other friendship networks, noting, of course, that even when we're talking about sexual abuse, that often harm from um, sexual abuse is occurring not just from other adults, but from children and young people. So that could be other people in the team, it could be at school, it could be online. Um, there's so many different ways where um, sexually harmful behaviours um, can be experienced by children and young people. So I think the, the Australian Child Maltreatment Study really sheds a, a, an important light on the diversity of different types of harm. It, it focuses our attention not just on sexual abuse, but all of the different components and elements of that, including harmful sexual behaviour from other children and young people. And as I said, importantly, the relationship with other forms of um, abuse and neglect. And interestingly, the area that I've been focusing on is how that um, relates to the long-term wellbeing. And we know that um, adults who are experiencing um, mental ill health and health risk behaviours like um, addictions um, and self-harming behaviours, that they are much more likely to have experienced multiple types of maltreatment rather than a single type. So um, hopefully this data can really be used by a whole range of different sectors, including sport, not just to renew their 
efforts around safeguarding to protect children from sexual abuse within their code, but more importantly, to keep children safe no matter where the harm comes from and no matter what type of harm. Um, Daryl, that's music to my ears hearing you you say those things because I think part of the key reason that, you know, we're, we're here, um, we're actually in Brisbane for a conference which has law enforcement agencies and, and child protection agencies involved is we need to understand that holistic approach and understanding the, the complex issues around child abuse and domestic violence. Certainly there's normally multiple um concerns and different types of abuse going on. I think sports understanding their duty of care, sports could be the one safe place that a child has. Um, they have such a strong and key, uh, important, you know, uh, role to play in terms of recognising indicators of abuse, particularly, you know, neglect. Neglect when a child doesn't have the right shoes or the right food. It's not because the parent is lazy or can't be bothered. There's usually lots of other underlying issues going on at home. And so understanding how to identify and respond to risk of harm is such a key part of this. So we don't just think that sports are going to harm children, but we understand, you know, exposure to domestic violence, for example, a lot of sports question, well, why is that our duty of care to have that included in our sport child safeguarding policy. It is one of the five five subcategories of abuse because it is such a huge problem. It is a cyclical problem and, you know, you're far more likely to repeat um repeat that abuse when you're an adult if you're exposed to it as a child. And so I think that that's really important to sort of provide that education and that knowledge, um, particularly when we talk about grooming um, there are detectives that struggle to um, prove grooming. It is a criminal offence in four states, but unfortunately it's very difficult to prove. And so the policies and the framework, so understanding, you know, our role is to to really decipher data, to work with data, to thank God have some current data to be able to work with, to be able to contextualise to the sporting space, to, um, yep, to, to be able to try and sort of support them to create those safe environments. Absolutely. I think having this um, recent data is amazing. I think a lot of people do think the Royal Commission um, was historical things. I know it did touch on historical abuse, but we know it's still very much prevalent. Um, I think for me, one of the challenges in all of this is, is the sports sector itself in the sense that it is often run by volunteers, their parents, it's people who are time poor. So certainly the sense we've got from the sector is eagerness, willingness, wanting to know how they can help, we work really closely with the Peak Body Sports Western WA who are really driving a lot of this work. So we've certainly come in and found a very willing and engaged sector. It's just there's it's a really challenging space, I think, because there is a high turnover of at the club level who's working there, coaches, parents. So I think it's sort of it's one of those things that we have is this information in a different sector, we might approach it differently. So for me, it's a little bit how can we actually look at the sector we have, the information we have, all the different areas working in this space and bring it together to actually tailor something for sport? Because I do think they've got some sort of slightly different considerations. And but I, it's hard to know how to do that. And I think sports, um, they can be a little bit competitive. You know, there's the, the, the clues in the title, right? And so they, they want to get through the national principles and become safe and get a big tick and that's it and it's done and, oh, my God, we're safe now. But you touched on the turnover. 
the risk isn't going to go anywhere, unfortunately. There's always going to be new children and there's always going to be people that are drawn to sports with nefarious intent. So understanding that continual improvement process and understanding you've got to stay, keep your finger on the pulse with latest legislation and standards and frameworks and data and, and it's going on and on. I always liken it to um, work health and safety legislation when it first came out in Australia and every builder said, we're never going to build a house. We're never going to get yeah. anything done because these rules are ridiculous. Oh my God, it's just, it's, it's undoable. But now it's second nature and that's where we're at with safeguarding yeah. in sport. Just on grooming, you, you highlighted a number of issues there. Is the online environment, Daryl, a, a real issue for you at the moment? And I guess navigating something we really haven't experienced a lot of before, but now suddenly it is coming in a wave? Absolutely. Look, I think with our, our younger sample in the um, in the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, that was one of the key locations, if you like, or contexts of, uh, of sexual harm was the online environment. So certainly things have changed from, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, that we have to constantly be rethinking um, what are the risks that we need to be engaging with? And of course, sport is not immune from that. You know, there's a lot of electronic communication that goes on, whether it be between um, team leaders and uh, participants, between the young people themselves, their friendship networks, their um, engaging with each other. Um, it's just one more form of communication that we need to be aware of and having in our sights when we're talking about what safety means for children and young people. But one of the things that I'm really um, kind of excited about the possibility for sports, and it touches on what you were talking about, Kate, in terms of um, the, the, the workforce, if you like, of, of many sporting clubs being volunteers and being parents themselves. The thing that I'm hopeful about is that effectively we have a training ground for building the capacity of parents because as they're going through the um, process of creating child safe organizations they're learning skills that they can actually translate into their home environment you know effectively what um, many sports coaches do just as many teachers and early childhood educated do you could in another context call parenting skills you know it's about how to manage behaviour of, you know, a group or an individual, um, how to use positive reinforcement, um, how to avoid coercion, um, how to avoid harm. And those are the same skill sets that we actually want parents to be using in the home. So I'm really positive about the role that the sports sector can play in building that parenting capacity and using evidence-based parenting practices as as a, you know, really upfront thing that they support and engage. I feel like that's a really important part and I think it's cliche for a reason. Everybody has a role to play in safeguarding sport and a lot of the contextualised um, resources that we're looking at, we understand that high performance in the national sporting body are probably not where the risk sits. It's at community level sport. And so understanding that it's all very well having your governance structures in place and, and great policies. But if people don't know what their rights are and what their responsibilities are, it's ineffective. No one's going to report and complain. And so educating parents and having them understand that, you know, when we had COVID, prime example, excluding parents from being able to watch their children um, train because of the numbers in, in the building is actually illegal. You cannot remove parents' parental responsibility. And so educating um, parents on 
how to uh, how to find a safe club and and how to mm. sort of ask the right questions to ensure that their children are kept safe. Exactly what you were talking mm. about before, Kate, is key. And part of the work that we're doing also with Play by the Rules is um, they have a big media campaign coming out called Start to Talk. And so the work that we in the safeguarding team aim to do is to develop resourcing to be able to provide that is accessible for people to understand, okay, well, what does this actually look like? What do I need to know and where do I go? So, yeah, it's a really key part. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think picking up on that sort of ability to share information with parents, I think particularly at that maybe more elite high performance level, I think that information also needs to come from the clubs themselves. I think there can be that power imbalance between a coach and a family. You see it in other sectors as well. You know, we saw it in religious institutions and I'm sure it's in, in other sectors as well. So I think making sure that the the institutes or the clubs themselves are also empowering parents is to let them to, to ask for feedback to make sure that kids are involved in decision making it starts to sort of level out that power imbalance a little bit so that families do actually feel that they could because they might know that they could say actually I want to stay but if they're feeling a little bit unsure because there is that you know unequal power they might not actually feel that they want to do that so I do think it's also important that the sector itself is driving that sort of messaging to say it's okay if you want to come back to us this is your right within this institute this club so the parents are a little bit more on that level playing field and famously you know having worked in child protection it's something that has not happened very well you know engaging children young people in decisions that affect them and having meaningful consultation and closing the loop and co-designing and co-branding mm. resources to them it's such a key part we i'm not going to plug um work that we're doing we've spoken in the past about you know speaking to children so getting the information from the horse's mouth understanding where they think the gaps are because sports identifying where they think operational risk is might be quite different to children and young people so that's part of the work daryl mm. has obviously been involved in and that we want to continue yeah absolutely you know child centered practice is really key to so many different areas and absolutely sport is um front and center um you know in in needing to really take that up and so it's great to see that that's you know that that's on the radar for the sector um and i really encourage you all to um keep going down that path because we learn very different things when we bother to stop and ask children about things like what makes them feel safe makes them feel uncomfortable things that adults don't necessarily feel um the same way about uh and and to then really respect that and as you say to have that flow through to decision making um you know often when we think about you know typical school environments and sport environments you know there's so many decisions that are made by adults without input or without consultation without engagement and of course there are some things that do have to be the responsibility of adults to decide but there are so many parts of life where we could legitimately and realistically um, hand over responsibility to um, to children and young people to be making decisions and that's really one of the the learning um, um, steps that we want them to take so that they actually are feeling as though they do have agency in their own lives because we then miraculously are expecting them to have agency if something goes wrong we want them to speak up well, hello, they're not going to speak up if we haven't already practiced giving them agency. If we haven't said, it's okay to talk about the icky stuff. You know, it's okay to tell me when you're feeling uncomfortable. And certainly from the research that my team have been doing at the Institute of Child Protection Studies um, at ACU is that if we don't create 
safe spaces for those conversations around other things that might be slightly less important from an adult perspective um, than child sexual abuse. So things like, you know, bullying and harassment or where they feel uncomfortable about, you know, um, their environment, etc. Unless we take those things seriously, they're just not going to tell us about those big things that we want them to be talking about. Absolutely. I think building trust is such a key um, element. Um, having worked in child protection again, um, I draw on that experience interviewing children. Often we would go out on a complaint or a report about one particular allegation and when you build that trust and you are a skilled interviewer or you, you can sort of ask the right questions, you very often will find out there's a lot more going on than you first initially expected. Just to finalise things and to wrap it up, and I guess, Daryl, you made a very good point there, as you did, Kate and Emma, the, the collaboration between the agencies and people involved in sport is so important. Do you think, firstly to you, Kate, is there enough collaboration happening at the moment between the agencies, sporting organisations, government agencies, and how important is it? I think it's really important. I think I'll only speak from my perspective, but... You know, you know, our unit's been established for about a year now and as I said before, it's the first time I've worked in this sector. I've been firstly, you know, incredibly grateful for the support that Emma and Sport Integrity Australia have been giving us in navigating our way through these recommendations and actions. I certainly often fire off an email saying, can I have a quick chat? Uh, and Emma's always very willing to give the time. We have been very supported in WA by our Departments of Justice, WA Police, Department of Communities, also navigating our way through this work. So I think there's been a lot of collab collaboration. We're meeting regularly with other sort of sporting organisations nationally to, to understand the business, understand the sector and see where some of the challenges are. I think that for me, child safety is, as Emma said, it, we all have to collaborate because there is not one agency or authority or individual or group that can tackle it. And I think the results from the recent study um, that Daryl's been doing has, has shown us that unless we as a collective society, we as a collective sector, government, state government, federal government, everyone under the sun really join forces to tackle this. We will never address it because I certainly can't help but open the news every day and see another issue in child safety, whether it be sport, culture and the arts, schools. Uh, it, it's sort of, it's pervasive and it's there. So I, I think we have to join resources. I think we should, where we don't have to double up, where someone develops information and resources that another agency or group or state can use, Great, let's share that because we're all time poor, we're all resource poor and unless we do that I just don't think we'll make a dent. I've spent many years, almost 30 years now, working closely with the child and family welfare sector and they've got lots of expertise in that sector in preventing all forms of child abuse and neglect dealing with vulnerability, working with parents, building their skills um, and capabilities, um, delivering evidence-based parenting programs and supports. The biggest problem though, is that one of the best ways to get access to those services and supports is to come in contact with the child protection system, get a referral to uh, a welfare agency. And that's not the way it should be. We should be getting that skill set out into the community in non-stigmatising ways, in ways that's accessible to parents. And sport is a beautiful example. You know, I often give the um, uh, the example of schools, you know, that, that parents typically trust teachers more so than they would a child protection worker. Um, and so 
you know, we want to be able to bring that skill set into a, a universal platform like schools. But I think sport is another great example of that. So how do we bring that that expertise that we have locked away in the statutory child protection system and all of the, you know, child family welfare agencies that it funds? Um, what about use the sport clubhouse for holding a, you know, seminar around, you know, parenting or putting out messages in your weekly um, online newsletter about what, um, you know, what are positive parenting practices um, and aligning it to the work of the club. You know, if you're actually wanting to guide and shape behaviour of the, um, you know, children and young people that you're working with, let's let's do it in ways that can have a broader impact on our community and keep children safe no matter where they are, whether they're at home or whether they're at uh, the sporting field. I feel I feel two ways about that that question, and and I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think the the resources that we want to develop certainly are looking at ways to decipher this information and make it digestible and accessible, and and really prevent and educate on what creates safety for children and young people in sport. On the flip side of that, we do have a com an independent complaint handling model at Sport Integrity Australia, and we are receiving complaints about abuse. And I think uh, a really key part of of what we do is we need to understand where our jurisdiction starts and stops. We understand that the national principles are principles, they're not enforceable. So states are adopting their own standards, um, WA, it will, will, it will come. Mm -hmm. um, and so working nationally in a federated system, I won't talk to the, the many um, challenges of, of that space, but I think for me it's key to understand, you know, how we can collaborate effectively when you really we do have that soft entry and understanding what's going on for a child um, in terms of their safety and how do we make sure that we share that information effectively across the right agencies so that when something does go wrong that we get you know an effective response and, and really nip it in the bud because as we know statistically one perpetrator can have on average 200 victims and so that's the that's the key work that where we really need to collaborate with those statutory bodies unfortunately I, I so agree I've worked in child protection I've seen it done really well seen it done not very well and um, that's all I'll say about that um, but yeah for me um, collaboration is key Thank you, Emma. Emma, Kate and Daryl, thanks very much for joining us on Onside. Thank you very much. Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Onside. Our guest today included Professor Daryl Higgins, the Director of the Institute of Child Protection Studies at the Australian Catholic University. Kate McNamara, the Director of Child Safeguarding at the Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries in Western Australia. And Sport Integrity Australia's Acting Director of Safeguarding, Emma Gardner. We'll have another episode of Onside very shortly. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au or check out our Clean Sport app.